The DIA is the only national professional body that champions the value of all design and the impact of our designers. Its purpose is to help designers prosper by providing knowledge, thought leadership, access and inclusivity. Head to design.org.au for more information about becoming a member of the DIA. The DIA acknowledges the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, giving respect to Elders past, present and future as the continuous custodians of the land upon which the DIA National Office is located. We thank all continuing custodians of this land who share their wisdom and knowledge so that we may all have a better understanding of this place, now known as Australia. David Welsh is a founding director of Welsh Major Architects with Christine Major. Established in 2004, calling themselves modern-ish architects, Welsh Major consider their work with a broad modernist sensibility, responding rather than reacting to program and context, looking to playfully create the unexpected yet with a considered clarity. So we welcome David Welsh to the conversation. Thanks, Catherine. It's good to have you with us. It's good to be here. And uh, apologies in advance for any background noise that might happen. They're demolishing up above us and below us at the same time. <laughs> so we always um, ask, where are you joining us from today? It sounds like you're in your studio. Yes. So I'm in the back corner of the studio here in Surrey Hills in Sydney. And yeah, it's nice to be back in the studio after after so long during lockdown. Is your team fully back or are you still working from home a little bit? We're all back now, which is which is great, but we're still trying to maintain some sort of flexibility as required. So um, yeah, and bring on Christmas, I say too. Cannot wait. <laughs> Three weeks in counting, I think. Yeah. yeah, it's busy times. And we always ask as well what you have on your drawing board or computer screen. At it's it's quite varied. There's all sorts of different things. There's hotels, restaurants, residential, single residential, and a small multi-resident. We've recently completed a cemetery building, a hospitality venue we've been working on for years, opened on Tuesday, so we're very excited about that as well. And what else? Some master plans for some parks. That's quite varied at the moment, so it keeps us interested and busy. That's an amazing breadth of work. How do you keep across it? I don't know. <laughs> just keep moving. <laughs> just keep going. But I think just having that diversity of, of work, and we're very lucky to have that diversity, just keeps you, whilst what we do is a fantastic, um, fantastic vocation, fantastic thing to be able to design, but to do it over different different briefs, different scales is something that I think is, is challenging, but kind of keeps you fresh at the same time. So we're very lucky. So we like to say that we specialise in nothing, but we've got to be careful how we phrase that. I love that because it's the shifting because we have a similar ethos where we just design for anything and everyone, like we do retail, but thereafter bring it tiny, huge, don't mind. Do you ever find like when you're, say you're working on multi-residential, a part of you just wants to stay in that lane? Like it's always, I always find like jumping lanes again. I'm like, oh, can I still do it? Can I shift gears? Yeah, it's, well, it's always great to spend a bit of time with a project, isn't it? But it's, it gets harder and harder to do that as, as, as you sort of grow and become more diverse. But just the sheer joy of getting, getting into the detail, I think is something that as designers, we all love. So when you get the chance to do, we really sort of jump at it and really enjoy the time, whether it's on paper, on screen, on iPad, 
whatever, whatever, uh, whatever you, whatever it is at the moment. There's one particular one at the moment that my partner Chris is working on, where we're looking at the re- refurbishment and the rejuvenation of a terrace house in the rocks in Sydney, and they uncovered a early 1800s colonial well which is inside the building. And so Chris has just creatively taught herself how to be a stonemason and she's working with stone at the moment to put back at the edge of the um, edge of the well, which I think is quite amazing and we're looking forward to showing people that uh, in the coming year. But, yeah, we're even working in stone, whatever, whatever medium comes your way, embrace it and work with it. So, yeah. And you seem to have an element of almost curiosity and a willingness to sort of investigate in your work or to reinvent. How do you find that that process works? Well, we always talk about the idea of not being a, taking a dogmatic approach. We always like to listen and learn. We love working with existing buildings and responding to things, listening and responding to things. So whilst we we talk about not specialising in anything in particular, I don't think that's quite right. What we do specialise in is, uh, I suppose, solving problems and finding new ways of looking at uh, buildings in particular. So, So I think that keeps you fresh and keeps, you know, the project presents the, the solution to you and that's what we look to in all of our work. Because of the diversity of your um, portfolio, do you find that when you have a client who approaches you with something like a cemetery, that that approach enables you to just sell yourself? How do you change lanes like that? Oh, well, it's such a great opportunity when something like that comes up and there's such a great canon of work that's happened in in over the years, you know, chapels in particular in cemeteries around the world, you know, the work of Aspland and Leverance in Scandinavia in particular is something that we're interested in and how they use light is such an awesome thing. So, you know, you look for the ways into the project and then that sort of establishes the brief and it starts to expand because what we find, and I'm sure I'm sure you do too, that when a client gives you a brief, that's a great start. But the sort of the real, I suppose, the creative juices and the response and the working relationship with the clients doesn't really start till you put something in front of them and then people can say, oh, wow, that's great or oh, I don't like that very much. And that's when the ball really starts to start rolling and uh, getting things going. And so the cemetery project or the sanctuary, as the particular building's called, was was part of that. And the idea of working with light was something that the clients really embraced and um, went forward with. And you mentioned um, finding ways into a project. Do you find that you present ideas to the client as sort of concept generators and then work with them through the concept? How does your design process unfold? Yeah, so I think we, we, we try to keep as open a mind as possible and try and find that way in to a project as presented by the environment that that project is set in. So if it's an existing building, for, for, for example, there might be a particular aspect of it that we uh, hone in on and expand upon. And then you start to put it out to your clients and then you start the dialogue. And some people uh, like particular aspects of, of design that you present and you might work with that. There might be an avenue that just uh, turns up as you have the conversation with people and you sort of 
duck down that avenue and explore that. So whilst we have a rough idea of where we'd like to go when we set out on a project, we certainly aren't. It's about the journey. The destination reveals itself in time. And internally within the studio, when you're um, throwing around those concept ideas, do you find that, you know, there's one spark and then it's a point of dialogue and discussion to generate this, uh, this concept or is it a series of ideas? How, how does the spark work internally in the studio? It, it varies. There's, there's 12 of us at the moment. So we've had to adapt the way we approach things as well and slowly but surely sort of let things go and open ourselves up. When I say ourselves, Chris and myself, open ourselves up to the, you know, the skills and the different ideas that we've got in the studio. And I think that's really quite an exciting thing to see evolving, giving people a voice and adding those extra layers and dimensions to a project, whether it is just a small alterations or an additions or a much larger development. It's something that we're uh, learning to learning to enjoy. Yeah. That idea of sitting down on your own and just designing something is, is a lovely romantic idea, that idea that a building or a space is designed by a single person. Sometimes it is, but more often than not, there's a whole team of people involved. And so that's, that is a particular aspect of what we do and how our studio works that we're looking to expand and enjoy a bit more. And how does that play out in like actual logistically in the studio? How do you bring in everybody to talk about it or share or town hall? Well, we all, we're all sitting around uh, two big tables, so we're never more than two metres away from each other. Over 1.5 metres, of course, we've got our COVID COVID distances. So people just overhear and whilst we're all working on screens these days, people get up and have a look and we try and discuss our ideas regularly at least once through the week formally and then perhaps less formally on a Friday afternoon as well. So it's there's different ways of getting people involved. So whilst generally there's one, two or three people working on the project, everyone has a sort of sticks their nose in things and adds a comment here or there and Sometimes they're taken on board, sometimes not so much, but it's, it's, I think it's a really good way to work. It definitely um, ends up being a richer outcome in the, when you really focus on the collaboration and, and the team sharing ideas. Do you, do you find that that's something that's added a dimension to your work, having yes. a larger team? Yeah, and it definitely. But we've had to we've had to learn to work differently, which is which is really interesting because you know you start your career out and you're working as a student or a, a junior architect or whatever, and you're often working with a large team, and then you unlearn, or at least I did unlearned working with people when I eventually set up my, my own practice with Chris. And then we're sort of evolving back again, which so it's quite a, kind of a nice evolution or de-evolution of how we work and communicate. And it's, it's particularly interesting and um, enjoyable at the moment as we all come back to the studio out of lockdown and just those little sort of microsecond moments that you have as you walk past someone and see what they're doing or you, you know, have a quick chat. That's those sort of, you know, those really quick interactions that you have that were a little more difficult to have over Zoom or Slack or Teams or whatever. We're enjoying having that back around the design process, that's for sure. How did you travel in the last two years having to work on screen? Because you are so collaborative. 
Well, it depends on the people. Everyone's everyone's quite different. It, I think we did it pretty well. We were making sure that we were talking to each other on different platforms through the day. And, we, you know, we developed systems and shorthands on how to communicate. And the projects did... I think they took a little longer, to be perfectly honest. I think I think generally you found that projects on site took longer. Communication was a little more stretched out, I suppose, to be honest. But we we still had we still covered the same ground and explored the same ideas, but the way we did it, I think was quite different. I do prefer the face-to-face, that's yeah. for sure. Who doesn't? <laughs> it's so nice to be back in the studio. Yeah. And just changing tack slightly, but having won the Dulux Colour Award this year for your 66 Wentworth Avenue project in the commercial interior category, with a delightful slash, I have to say, of apricot pink within the commercial building. Italian clay. Dulux Italian clay. Italian clay. I was going to ask you about the (laughs) colour. But how do you approach colour in your projects? We use colour as a response to environments and materials in particular. I'll say generally because I think with that particular project that that, that you mentioned at Wentworth Avenue, it's all about colour. It's about a, a bold use of a single colour really to transform a what is a car park essentially that people were using as the main entry to, to the building. Most people came through the car park. So just by adding colour, adding, you know, 50 microns of of, of emotion to the surfaces, no matter what they were, was something that absolutely transformed the space. And that was a really wonderful thing to do. So we weren't responding so much to a material in that instance. It was all about just that colour. But working with, uh, say, let's say more natural materials, the timbers, the stones, concretes and metals as well, you can add so much more by the punctuation of colour. Um, can really, you know, enhance and lift these materials and you start to get this kind of energy bouncing back between different surfaces and forms and that's something that we're uh, really quite excited about. There's a, a, a particular project that we're working on at the moment which features a lot of Tasmanian blackwood but it's also set up against some joinery which is a Mondrian blue, Dulux Mondrian blue. And the two are really, they just work so well together. There goes the drilling. We can hear the drilling. <laughs> I think it's Sorry very real. That. You know, you've got the drilling in the background. You're a proper architect. It, it's, it's authentic, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. Did that, did that sound really loud at your end? Not really. Oh, good. Okay. We're a bit sensitive to it, obviously. <laughs> I can imagine it would slowly drive you crazy working in the studio, though, top and bottom. Above yeah. and below you. No, I don't think it's been simultaneous yet, so we're uh, thankful for that, that's for sure. <laughs> David, I might take the chance to ask you the billion-dollar question. What's your dream project? Oh, that's a tough one. The one that I can't dream. <laughs> the, one that I, the one that just surprises you and you, do, you have to go, oh, wow, that's cool. What, would I, what am I going to do? So... Um, yeah, that's a difficult question that I can't answer particularly well because I don't know the answer. But then have you ever said no to a project then? Yeah, we're learning to say no. But for a long time we didn't and we don't like to because I think there's something in every project, no matter how big or small, and there's an opportunity to show how design can make 
people's lives better. So we like to, we, wherever we can, we like to uh, say yes and help out. But the sort of the pragmatics of running a business lately, we've been saying no sometimes, particularly as we grow. We did find, you know, you do find that you're better at doing particular scales of projects over others. That's very true. I mean, as a trajectory of a practice, do you find that you're heading towards larger projects typically, or do you find that you still love the smaller scale, even residential projects? Is it a certain direction you're taking? We are consciously heading towards larger projects, slowly but surely. We did do small projects very well at the start, which is um, lovely to get the recognition, but it's not the greatest business model in the world to pursue. But, you know, it's still we still like to do those small projects where we can. There's one at the moment which I'm going out to have a look at on, on the weekend. I think we've been working on it for maybe six years now, and it's, it's a granny flat, essentially. Really? But then it's evolved into sort of a play, a sort of studio for the kids. And then it's evolved again due to COVID, of course, to become a different kind of studio for working at home. But the client is building it. So it could be another six years, you never know. But just going out there and just talking about building and construction at a small scale is something that's really quite lovely to do. It's very satisfying. Do you pick up the hammer yourself? Well, that was part. I did I did extend the cubby house at home to become a COVID studio for myself and it was finished in time for us to come back to the studio. So it's never actually been in there since. But it was fun. I have to say I grew up with an architect as a father and my house was always half built. So <laughs> it's, you know, this lovely sort of in construction phase that was my childhood. Yeah, it's you, you've, you've nailed it pretty much there. Pardon the pun. The unfinished, the unfinished work. Will we finish it or will we move? Who knows? Yeah, that's it. No, you can't fit. You can't move. You haven't finished the house we yet. Finished that's it. the problem. Exactly. <laughs> this podcast was made with the support of Dulux. Head to dulux.com.au forward slash colours for your insider scoop on what's new, emerging, and upcoming in the wild world of colour. Explore the 2022 Duolux Colour Forecast colour palettes to discover the trends set to influence colour and design for the coming year. And then looking towards sustainability, you achieved carbon neutral certification last year. And how does the studio approach sustainability in your designs? Mm. Well, as, as you know, there was, there, there was a, a, a big call out to architects in particular through Architects Declare a few years ago. And we were already looking at how we might sort of make sure that the way we work is as environmentally responsible as possible before we start lecturing other people on how to live their lives. So we went down the path of externally getting ourselves externally audited and set down the path of being carbon neutral. So just becoming aware of, you know, the impacts of everything you do, the energy that uh, goes into the different aspects of your business life, the resourcing of the materials that you go through made us more conscious of what we did on a day-to-day basis. And I think that had a direct influence. No, I know it had a direct influence on how we designed for others as well. And then we were able to augment that sort of knowledge of living 
uh, in a more sustainable way into how we put our buildings and spaces together. Because most of, you know, I think the over the life of a building, its operation costs and its energy usage, I think 50 to 60 percent of the um, carbon footprint of a building is in, in its construction. So as architects and designers, we've got a great opportunity to really make a difference to the uh, the carbon footprint that we're all suffering a little under at the moment. So it's, it's going to take a long time, but uh, hopefully we'll all get there. We, we have to. Aren't we we really? have to, exactly, we have to. We will. Humans want to live. If, I, if I'm backing anyone in the race, I'm backing humans want to live. So when push comes to shove, I think people are going to jump on. But you were saying, David, about, you were talking about dream project and because you don't know what you don't know. And I wonder if dream project is one full of challenges. Like, you know, when someone gives you the open brief, like we do, you know, concept work, which is fun, but it's a bit annoying because there's not enough problems to solve. And then hearing you talk about sustainability, maybe hopefully that's something we see as one of the, you know, the challenges in the brief is, and it needs to be sustainable on X, Y, Z. Yeah, it's, I think we find we work best when there are parameters in place, whether it's built built parameters, cultural or economic parameters, you know, when we set ourselves up as a design practice practice that listens, if there's nothing to listen to, if you just got to go out there, you've got a problem. But yeah, I think how how you respond to what you find and the conditions and the aspirations as well, because I think sustainability uh, is achievable, but it's still unfortunately aspirational. We, I think we trying to work towards that in a meaningful way in insisting on greener building materials on sustainably and responsibly resourced materials by Putting those parameters on yourself, if you like, is something that can really help your design process, I think. We often talk about being a little bit subversive in Mm. the way we design, that we keep a little bit to ourselves that we don't necessarily talk about to our clients, you know, something that we're particularly interested in or is a sort of reference to an esoteric designer or architect that is exciting for us but not particularly interesting for others. So there's always a little bit of yourself that you have to keep as as a designer, I think. And, you know, that sustainability for a while did fall into that category for us. We had assumed that we just design as best we can to achieve a minimal carbon footprint, but we never really talked about it. I think that time's well and truly passed. we got to talk about it whenever we can. I was going to ask, you know, how do you have that conversation with your client about sustainability? Is this on the agenda from the start or is it, yeah, just something embedded in your process? I think it's often talked about at the start, but it's often one of the things that drops off pretty early. So it's you've got to kind of keep it rolling yourself as best you can. So if you sort of keep that going in the background and, you know, responsibly source the materials yourself without... I'm sort of contradicting what I just said without talking about it. I think you've got to do that. It's a it's a multifaceted approach that we have to take if we're going to really significantly reduce uh, our our greenhouse gases and our carbon footprint. I think, isn't it? You've got to be very committed to it, don't you? Because you've got to stick to that through your process, and you can't be diverted. Yeah, you, you don't want to um, 
be a bore about it, I suppose, but it's pretty important really, isn't it? It's about, it's about life. It's about living and living Absolutely. well. Absolutely, yeah. living well. And just changing tack again, but we spoke to uh, Sarah-Jane from Aaron and Pike earlier and could see you collaborated with them on some beautiful residential projects. Yeah. How do you approach multidisciplinary design in your work? Well, I think it's the the work that the projects that we worked on with Arrington Pike, we it's understanding that different people bring something fresh and different and multifaceted and skilled to a project. What they do is amazing and we just couldn't do that. They just added so much to those particular projects in the way that they sort of uh, curated the furniture and artwork in in particular in a couple of projects it's something that just adds an extra dimension and so that multidisciplinary approach appreciating and uh, understanding what everyone can give it comes back to that thing I was speaking to earlier about a building is put together by a lot of different people a lot of different minds and when it works it really works Exactly. When it doesn't, it can be very difficult. (laughs) (laughs) And you're also a writer about architecture and design. How do you approach narrative in your work? Is it an important thread to your design development? Yeah, um, it depends who or what I'm writing about, who who I'm writing for or what I'm writing about. It's a great excuse to go and see what a lot of other designers are up to, which is such a wonderful thing to be able to do and to meet a lot of younger architects in particular and see what they're doing. And I think often I'm writing for non-designers. So what I'd like what I'd like to do is try and build up a little map in 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 the way I write of the project that I'm visiting and talking about. I think a lot of architects and designers don't realise that most people aren't visual people. You know, we're all looking at the pictures in the magazines and, yes, we read the words, but a lot of people are reading the words first and the pictures come second, the images come second. So it took me a long time to work this out. But building up that building up that narrative, that story, that picture in words is an essential part of communicating about good design. Yeah, and I love that because sometimes the copy that accompanies the imagery in architecture and design is like it's a personal bugbear, but it's because my background is comms and it's very highfalutin and it's sound bites and word salad. And if someone can take me on a story, the more poetic, romantic, whimsical, tell me the honest truth, you know, the fabric was blowing on the clothesline and that was the inspiration for blah, 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 I will come with you on any journey. But as soon as, yeah, like it's so refreshing to hear that's your writing style to do with architecture and design. So on behalf of the reader, thank you. (laughs) <laughs> it's just having that 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 story is the key to unlocking the house so to speak isn't it letting people in and then you can lead them around and get them excited and then you go back and look at the photos and then you go back to the words and try and delete that sort of the, the sort of boring designy words and just talking if you if you can't just use everyday words to describe a space maybe the space is not what it should be Totally. I always give the advice, just explain how you would explain it verbally and quickly write that down. 
Because you would never walk through a house, Catherine's heard this many times, but you would never walk through a house and explain, you know, intersectional juxtapositions. (laughs) Yeah, if it's got three three syllables or more, you're out. The the students in architecture school are now cringing because, you know, a lot of it is coming out of schools sometimes you know the the bigger the word the, the better the design but actually you know the simpler the words and the more accessible it is the perhaps the stronger the better design yeah yeah and it, you're so right that's what we're it's what the way we're taught to communicate at university and you've got to unlearn that because it's it's um not the way most people talk is it <laughs> and you've lost the will to live before you finish the paragraph <laughs> I think it goes back to high school as well. Remember word counts in essays? And so you'd have to get it up to a word count. And then I think to this day, people still carry that forward. You know, when you get the big email, you're like, oh, no. You know, I had a boss once that challenged us to write the email in the subject line. Oh, but yeah. Yeah, it's pithy was his. Everything had to be pithy. It's a total game changer. I think, and I think as the pressures on people's time gets more and more, you know, people aren't reading emails down to even the second paragraph anymore, are they? You can't say it in the in the in the headline or the first paragraph; it just gets missed often. So, there's a reason in itself to be succinct and clear. And it's almost coming into spatial design now. You know that the the spaces are less. You know they're, they're almost simpler and more connected, perhaps. It, it feels like we've sort of stripped away a lot of ornament and they're becoming very spare spaces because we need that space in our life. You know, we're inundated by emails and life and we need these spaces that are very calm and simple. Yeah. Um, you know, when when most people are looking through that uh, small window in, in their hands to access most things in their lives, the spaces become more important. And you're right, you sort of have to get them back to what's really important. In, in those in the third dimension that you actually inhabit and walk through and rest and sleep and play in. and spaces you know as we get as there's more pressure on real estate perhaps spaces are getting a little smaller as well or hopefully they are as we become we try and watch our carbon footprint you're really starting to think about the fundamentals of what we actually need. And if we look at, you know, the life of a, an architect, you know, practice is really intense. It's, a, it's, a, it's not an easy path. And um, yet I saw somewhere you're also a part-time cheesemaker, a cricket team manager, you know. How do you balance <laughs> life and design? Give us your top, you know, your top tips. <laughs> you have gone deep into the internet to find that thing about the cheesemaking. <laughs> I love cheese. Um, <laughs> I haven't done that for a while. But, yeah, you just, I think being just, being diverse about the things that you think about. Maybe that's reflective in the way we practice too and looking at and enjoying different building types. Diversity keeps you happy, I think, or keeps you sane perhaps. Let's not not go so far as happy. Let's just say sane. I'll take sane. Happy (laughs) seems lofty. That's I know my lane. (laughs) (laughs) What is this? idea exactly i don't i feel like i don't even know what sanity is anymore though you know we've been through two years of the pandemic what is normal anymore is there you know how do we define sanity yeah and you know it's it's what what we've gone through is very odd when you when you think about it isn't it and next year who knows what's going to happen as well are we going to get another round of this or is there going to be 
everyone seems to be coming out of this lockdown sort of super pumped and wanting to do things and getting ready to go. But there's this material shortage going on at the same time and there's pressures on, you know, on wages and all sorts of things. And there's, we're still, you know, we, we relied on our, on, on people coming to our country from overseas to really keep things going. What's, what's going to happen? So whatever we think sanity is, is going to get turned on its head probably in no time anyway. So just keep going, at least till Christmas. Well, that's right. And then we can collapse. (laughs) We're at a real popcorn moment. I was at lunch yesterday at a fancy place for our work lunch and it was a step like a demographic I haven't been amongst for ages because of the lockdowns and stuff. So we're all similar age. Everyone was fancily dressed. There were no, no one north of 60, no one south of 25. It was like, you know, when you live overseas and you're in the, you know, I hate the phrase expat. But, you know, it's that culture, that bubble. It was yeah. like being back in the bubble and it was, you know, we're all drinking champagne and caviar and I was, God, oh, <laughs> I remember this. <laughs> Apparently there's a shortage of champagne at the moment. And the when you are, <laughs> I know. That's the real concern yeah, that this country true. needs to address straight away. Oh, my. I'll be straight on to Dan Murphy's after this. <laughs> yeah, it's people, people need an outlet, yeah. That's what I learned on the news last night. What top item in the news headlines? <laughs> yeah, straight to the, yeah, there's some other things, but I can't remember what they were. War fires. Like a lot of lobster, but no champagne. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, true that. And final question, but obviously very important. What is your favourite Dulux colour? And what is your signature Dulux white? So two-prong question. <laughs> oh, well, the first, I'll answer the last one, which is the most important question. It's natural white, I'm afraid. Does what it says on the tin? Yes. Have not swayed from that for a long time. And it shuts down the white question, which can be all-consuming, as you know. Favourite colour this week. Did I mention it before? Oh, yeah, I did. The Mondrian blue, especially when it's teamed with Tasmanian blackwood. I love the fact that you you bring a natural material next to the colour as well. That's very Welsh major. (laughs) It's, It's great. It's, it's fantastic. It's looking really good. It was installed on site a couple of days ago and it looks wonderful. I, so, I love that buzz you get when you walk in the, the space and you're like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Was it that sort of moment? Well, I I've, um, haven't actually seen it live yet. I've only seen the photos. So uh, I'm waiting for that moment. So I know that's coming. That's coming on on Monday, I think. I'll get to see You'll have to have a champagne moment. That's right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Is that premature to walk onto a building? Yeah, sorry. But all sorts of OH&S issues there. Well, thank you, David, for your time. It's been fantastic to talk to you and talk about your your process and your approach to your work. Uh, Thank you so much, Catherine, and thanks, Renee. It's been good. It's been a good good time out from from the... uh, the looming deadlines that I'll now get back to. <laughs> Love those Friday deadlines. <laughs> Don't you? <laughs>